So <clears throat> this week I read a poem that I had not read before, and it's sort of a proverb, and it's an old 19th century proverb. It says this, the bird with the broken pinion never soars as high again. It goes on to say other things, but that's the refrain that comes back again and again. The bird with the broken pinion never soars as high again. It's a warning to us. It's quoted and generally believed that once you failed, like that saying says, once you failed, you're broken. You can't do what you might have been able to do before. You can't achieve the heights that you had achieved before. Is that true? Is that true? That indeed the bird with a broken pinion never soars as high again? I'm not so sure. I'm not a ornithologist. I don't know about that, but... By implication, in that saying, does that mean that I can never be what I was? That I can never be what God had in store for me because of the mistake I made, because of the failing that I've experienced? That even if by God's miracle and grace I recover, I'm forever sidelined from the good? I'm forever sidelined from the purpose that I might fulfill for God? Is that true? Well, we're going to look at that today. Uh, we're going to backtrack a little bit. Last Sabbath, we joined a beautiful story of Ruth. And we walked away from that Sabbath. At least I did. I walked away with the, um, the sense that the never-ending obstacle-eliminating, barrier-overcoming, promise-keeping, loving-kindness of God is for me. It's for you. That's God's love for us. That is the kind of love and care that he has for us. And I also walked away challenged with the calling that he's given me, he's given you, to live that same chesed, loving kindness in our relationships, relationships at home, neighborhood, in our world. It's the kind of chesed love that hopes all things, bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. It's a never failing, never failing kind of love. That's what I walked away from with that study. But this week, we jumped to a Amazing story, amazing person, story of Moses, one of the most important characters in biblical history, one of the most important characters in world history, I would say. He's one of the few characters in Scripture whose story is told from birth to death. Only a few. Other than Jesus, Moses might be, well, might be the most well-known character from the Bible. And it's easy to glamorize this person, especially Moses, it seems, among all the great characters in Scripture. It's easy to glamorize. And when it comes to Moses, we have a lot of reason to do so because those of us who have gray caps on our head can remember that strong-hearted, machismo Hollywood character named Charlton Heston, who was Moses in that movie, and then some of you who are younger 
you may think of Moses as a trim, quick-witted character from the modern animated film. So Moses has gotten a lot of time. But whatever picture you carry in your mind, the real Moses, the real story, the Bible story, was a man who faced the struggles that you face, was a man that faced the trials that I face. And he was a man that didn't always do it right, but who in spite of his shortcomings, in spite of his hesitancies, in spite of his mistakes and sins and detours, he became in God's hands the one who would do his purposes, who would do his who would do it according to his timing and his will. That's, that's Moses. You know, I, I may not know you well. In fact, I don't know you well. Some of you I don't know really at all. But I can say this about you. God wants to. God is willing to. God is able to. To create an amazing story in your life, through your life, despite your shortcomings, despite your sins. And, and it may not be as dramatic, it may not be as world-changing as Moses in the Bible, but it will be the most fulfilling, the most rewarding, the most exciting, the most amazing life you could ever live. That's the life with God. That's the life he has for you. How do I know? How do I know this? Because he's creator God. He's redeemer God. He's recreator God. He's savior God. He restores. He's a friend. He was a friend to Moses, and he's a friend to you. And he's doing a great work. He wants to do a wonderful work in you. So, let's look at Moses. He entered the world in the darkest of eras, the middle of darkness, maybe a short Bible review will help us fill in some of the gaps. Think of the time before Moses, under Joseph's leadership and God's blessing, Egypt became, as you recall, the breadbasket for tribes and nations that were struggling all around the region from famine, from seven years of crippling famine. Joseph and his family were some of those that uh, were the people groups from that region who came and sought help and were spared by Egypt. But for Joseph and his family, they were not only spared and fed, they were also offered refuge in Egypt. That became their, their home in Goshen. And as long as Joseph lived, as long as Joseph was alive in Egypt, everything was well. Everything went well. But after his passing... New rulers came into rulers into power in Egypt, and everything changed. And that's where we take up the story in Genesis, I mean, Exodus chapter one. It kind of sets the stage for what is about to happen—a portentous transition. Notice Exodus one eight to ten. It says, "Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look." He said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So 
with Joseph, you see, no longer in the scene, his kinfolk, the Jews, became foreigners. They became hated. Their relationship toward them soured in Egypt. And Egyptians began to look on them with suspicion. The siege of prejudice, the seeds of um, this type of thinking is as old as human civilization. Israel, to the Egyptians, they worked different. They looked different. They talked different. They had different customs, different traditions. And those differences became distorted. Those differences became misunderstandings. And those differences were demonized. Life for Israel in Egypt went from good to bad and from bad to worse. They were forced into slavery and increasingly then viciously opposed and oppressed. Exodus chapter 1. 13 and 14, it says, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. So the king of Egypt, the king of Egypt, ordered the Hebrew midwives to murder every baby boy that they helped deliver and then ordered all Egyptians, whenever they came across one, to throw the infant Hebrew males into the Nile River. That was the order. Through slavery, through mistreatment and hardship, through all the threats, you can't help but get the impression that God is still with his people. God is still guiding them. God is still sustaining them and helping them. Despite the brutal treatment that they were receiving, he shined through. He protected through. He helped through, well, heroes and heroines of faith, like the Hebrew midwives who, who honored God more than they honored the king. Now, I want to just stop for a moment right here. This isn't our main point, but it's an important point. And I just want to reflect on this reality. Hard times are hard. We are in a hard time right now. But those hard times don't erase the reality of God's care and keeping. Never forget that. God's promises are true no matter what the history is that we're living through. God's goodness is always for us. He never forgets his people, ever. It may have felt that way for the Jews in Egypt, It may feel that way right now for you that God has forgotten, that his promises aren't true, that he has no care for you, but that's not the case. When you're in the midst of a difficult chapter, when you're in the midst of a hard circumstance, you can know that he's even closer there. Listen listen to this promise, one of my favorites, Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. Can a mother forget a baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? That's a pretty strong statement. Though she may forget, I will not forget you, says God. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Isn't that a precious thought? I love that scripture. 
you may forget, I may forget, the whole nation may forget, but God will never forget. God never forgets. He can't forget. He's etched us on the palms of his hands, this scripture says. He's got your face front and center on his mantle. That's the way I like to think of that verse. It may be difficult for you to spot that right now. You may be in a place where it's hard to see that that's what's going on. It may be that as you look back over this last year, it's been one of the worst of your experience. In fact, I read a survey that was done that over 70% of people say that 2020 was the worst of years. And you may wonder, in rare moments, moments of quiet, where is God in all of this? I just want you to know, friend of mine in Christ, he's right at your side. That's where he is. Through it, in it, you are his child. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That's his promise. And he just says, believe me. Trust me. Surrender to me. I love this thought from the pen of Ellen White. It says, our heavenly father has a thousand ways to provide for us of which we know nothing. <laughs> Be hopeful and courageous. He knows our every necessity. His love is as far above all other love as the heavens are above the earth. Just put your mind around that. In the darkest days, when appearances seem most forbidding, have faith in God. He is working out his will, doing all things well in behalf of his people. The strength of those who love and serve him will be renewed day by day. I say amen to that. His promise to bless us, his promise to bless Israel and to cause them to be a blessing hadn't been put aside. That's what he said to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He said they would be blessed and be a blessing. And he did. He did bless. And he has blessed. And his promise to bless and strengthen and encourage and inspire you is just the same. He will. He will. As surely as the sun comes up each morning. God's blessings are true. All of, a, all of which brings us to really the focus of our study this morning. Far from escaping God's notice, God's people in Israel are the object of his attention in the midst of their challenge. And so too, our heavy chapters, our difficult circumstances are the very time that God takes notice especially. He's there. For Israel, for us, for every child of God, for every person that bows in surrender, in submission, in trust, in belief, in faith, God has a plan. He's working out a plan, even through hardship. Things may not arrive on time like you think they ought to arrive on time, or in the manner that you think or expect. In fact, they probably won't. But it will arrive at the best time, God's time, the right time, the best way, God's way. That's always the truth. So now, enter Moses. Enter Moses. You know, it was no accident that the third child and second son of Amram and Jochebed was born to 
Jewish parents during an extermination of boys. It was no mistake that that happened that way. It was no accident, no accident that a desperate mother hit her newborn son among the Niles reeds. No accident. No accident. It was no accident that Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe that morning. No accident. It was no accident that she had compassion on this infant boy. It was no accident she agreed to this little girl's suggestion that she fetch a nurse, (laughs) the baby's mother, to care for this one. It was no accident. It was no accident that the waters of the Nile that were designated to drown the Hebrew boys became the place where Moses was spared from death. No accident. Spared from death, catapulted to life and royalty. Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts, fills in a lot of details. Acts chapter 7, verse 22. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action, Stephen says. Pharaoh's daughter took Moses as her son. She put him through all the training that Egypt could give. Not just Egypt, but royal Egyptian home could give. He was educated in the Harvard of the ancient world. He learned language. He learned science. He learned astronomy. He learned chemistry. He learned theology. He learned philosophy and law and literature and military strategy. All there. He diligently studied. And as that verse says that we just read, he became powerful in speech and action. That's Moses. There. He was pampered and primmed by Egypt for ruling Egypt. But Moses, as Karen said, Moses never forgot his roots. He never forgot his roots. He sensed a solidarity with those that were oppressed, with the slaves. Moses knew that the destiny for God's people was not slavery. Moses knew that the destiny and purpose for God's people wasn't in Egypt. Moses knew that God's will was not to be there, but the problem with Moses is that he didn't care to seek God's way or timing. Hmm. Stephen tells the story a little bit more as he gives testimony before his accusers. Acts chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses, get this, thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue him, but they did not. Was God troubled over the oppression of his people in Egypt? Yes, he was. Did Moses feel the same burden for his people? Yes, he did. Did Moses think that it was God's will for him to act? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. But in reality, he just took matters into his own hands. He dedicated himself to the will of God 
but not to the ways of God. That's a challenge. That's often a problem that I have. I'm dedicated to the will of God, but not his ways. I do that too often. Certainly not as far as Moses did, murdering someone, nor do you, I'm sure. But, but it's easy, isn't it, to compromise truth, justice, mercy, love, and think that we're following God's will? You know, here's a little something that, that just strikes me. That God's will for us, God's will for us will never take us in a way that's against his will. God's will for us will never take us in a way that's against his will for all. What's God's will for all? Well, it's pretty clear. He's given 10 commands that identify and uh, outline those things. And then Jesus summarized those 10 in two. Love God and love others. And then Jesus further honed that to something even more specific when he said, a new commandment I give to you. Remember that? He said it in John chapter 13, verse 34. New commandment. Love one another. Not just love. I mean, it's nice to have love. I've talked with people who believe in love. But what kind of love? Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said. So Moses, he led a premature strike because he thought it was God's will. And he ended up being most wanted status in Egypt and led him into a 40-year setback. He fled to Midian, and he spent the next 40 years in timeout. That's a long timeout. <laughs> That's a long timeout. 40 years, 40 years, he was nursed by a desert solitude and taught by God. Taught by God. You know, the desert is a place the desert is a place where God speaks some of his most important messages to us. Those places. Moses has had 40 years to think about it and contemplate the consequences of, of doing his own will and the truth of who he really was. That was what, what was going on for Moses. Mark Twain kind of described that journey bluntly when he said, we're all like the moon. We have a dark side we don't want anyone to see. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? It is. For Moses, those 40 years, those 40 years were an opportunity for him to look deep into his own soul and see who he was, see his own heart, see his own ambition. 40 years to examine the all-important outside of life and inside of life that's so often in conflict with one another. Forty years. The memorable follower of Jesus, D.L. Moody, described Moses' life this way. I kind of like what he said. Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning he was nobody. And he spent his third 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. You and I may never reach that 120 mark <laughs> like Moses, okay? But each of us are in one of those stages right now, aren't we? We either think we're somebody 
and we're struggling to make everyone else fall in line or we advance to the place where we realize we're a nobody or we've come to the place where we discover that God can do something even with a nobody. That's where God wants us to be. Wherever we are, God is there with us in every place, in every stage. And he's doing the same thing he did for Moses. Genuinely, inexorably, leading us to a powerful place with him. That's what he's doing if we'll stay in his hands. So Moses has blown out his 80 candles. (laughs) Okay? And before the all the facts fall into line, he happens to be in a most remote place, a desert place, a singular place. Exodus 3, 1 to 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush, and Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange thought sight why the bush doesn't burn up. Strange sight, for sure. Interestingly, that verse says that Moses happened to be, happened to be near the very place where he would go up on a mountain and see another fire. It wouldn't be a bush, but it would be a beginning place, a beginning place. And it was a beginning place for Moses. And it's because God was there in that beginning place. In that special place. In that solitary place. I just want to pause for another moment and say, do you have a place like that? Do you have a solitary place like that? A place to be quiet? A place to be alone? A place to hear from God? What he's speaking to you from his word? and talking to you through his living word and by the guidance of his spirit, a place where you can be ministered to by him? Do you have that kind of a place? Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So God, you see, he knows their pain. He knows their circumstance. He knows their situation. He hears their cries for help. And by the way, he hears your cries. He hears your cries for help. He knows in most intimate detail what's going on in our lives. And he's touched by your need. He's touched by your need. Now the enemy wants you to think otherwise. The enemy wants you to think God doesn't care. God doesn't know. He doesn't know about my family. He doesn't care that my my family, my marriage, my my children are challenged. He doesn't know. He did, that's what the enemy is trying to tell you. He's trying to tell you that, that God doesn't care about your job, that you lost your job, that you lost your business, that you're, you're losing your car it's, and your family is falling apart. You, the, enemy, the enemy wants you to think that, that he, God doesn't care that you don't have the funds to pay your bills or to, to deal with your emotions or your hardship or the, the disruptions. But God says to you, God says to me, trust me, believe me, I care. That's what God says. And I love, again, 
the words that God spoke through Jeremiah, some of my favorites in Scripture. For I know the plans, Jeremiah 29, 11. Aren't they nice? Aren't they beautiful? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. This is one of the first verses I memorized from the Bible. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to bring you a future and hope. Those words have always meant so much to me. God has a plan. God has a future. And he says to me, I'm working out the details, Jeff. Everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to be fine. And God speaks to Moses the same. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And when Moses hears God's plan, what, what, God, you're sending me? I already tried that. And Moses, Moses reacts, and his reaction is strong and hard. And sometimes we think it's deep humility, but it's really not humility. Moses isn't being humble. He's really giving an argument of inferiority. He feels inferior. He feels inadequate. He feels broken. He feels like he can't do it. He already tried, did it wrong. Like the poem that we read at the start with that one phrase, the bird with the broken pinion. He believed that he couldn't soar again. He couldn't go as high. He couldn't do it. That God wouldn't use him the same way again. That God couldn't. But God didn't ask Moses to deliver the people. He didn't say, Moses, would you be the deliverer? God said, I'm going to do that. Exodus 3, verse 8. I have come down to rescue them, God said. I have come down, not you, Moses. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. He just needed Moses to be an instrument of action. God was going to do the work. Moses would be his agent. That's the way it is with us. But Moses was full of excuses. And you know them. You've read them. You remember them. What if they don't believe me? He said in verse, chapter 4, verse 1. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? He said, I'm slow of speech and tongue. I can't talk. He said, please send someone else. Chapter 4, verse 13. And God has some divine assurances, one after the other after other. He says, Moses, what's in your hand? A staff. Throw it to the ground. It becomes a snake. God says, pick it up again, Moses. He picks it up. It becomes a staff again. He says, Moses, put your hand in your coat. Take it out. It's leprous. Put it back in again. Take it out. It's back to its normal, healthy self. He says to Moses, Moses, who gave you your mouth? Who gave you your words? Who gives you speech? Who gives you sight? Moses, I'll help you speak. I'll put words in your mouth. I'll tell you what to say. I'll invite your brother Aaron, who's good at speaking, to come help you. He can speak well. You tell him what to do, and he'll tell others what to do. I'll give you the answers. I'll give you the words. I am, I am, says God, I am Yahweh. He introduces himself to God's people. Yahweh, the only God who is. I am. I am the I am God. There is no other God in the universe. I am the only one. I am the eternal one, the existent one, 
the constant one, the completely sufficient one, the ever-present one, God is saying to Moses, I am. I am all that you will ever need. And he's saying that to you. He's saying it to me. Now, Moses didn't have what it takes. He didn't have the public speaking skills. He didn't have the powers of influence to persuade Hebrew or Egyptian. Moses didn't didn't have any of that, but he did have what was important, what was necessary. And that was God's empowerment, God's blessing, God's inspiration, God's influence in his life. God didn't need human talent. God didn't need human intellect. God didn't need human skills. God didn't need human abilities. He only needed Moses. And he only needs you. Just you. Just like you are. You may, be, you may feel the furthest from special right now. <laughs> you may feel the furthest from special. You may feel the furthest from being distinctive or being called. You may feel the furthest. You may feel totally unqualified, totally unprepared, uneducated, untrained, undergifted, and even unworthy. All of that. But God doesn't call the gifted. He gifts the called. That's what he does. That's what he does. And I want to say to you, it's no accident that you were born to this place and this time. It's no accident that you're here today. You may feel like an accident. You may feel like your life's an accident. You may be overwhelmed with the accidents that are happening in your life and even some that you've created But God has not abandoned you. He's got power. He only needs your willingness, your yes, your surrender. He's got a way. He just asks you to surrender to his way. He's got a glorious plan for you. He only needs you to yield to his plan. The warning of that old proverb is kind of haunting, isn't it? The bird with a broken pinion never soars as high again. And it implies, if you read it through, it implies that my errors and shortcomings have so damaged me that I can never be what I could have been. Now, I may be useful for, for teaching what happens when you do what I do. You know, don't let this mistake happen to you. It happened to me. That, that's all I'm good for. But someone else, I I am bothered by that poem, and someone else was bothered too. And as the story goes, this poem was read or sung at a prison. And when the prisoner heard the poem, someone just yelled out in despair, if that's true, if this is true, then there's no hope for me. There's no hope for any man in this room. So another verse was added. And it goes like this. The soul that comes to Jesus is saved from every sin. And the heart that fully trusts him shall be shall a crown of glory win. Then come to the dear Redeemer. He'll cleanse your every sin. By the grace he freely gives you, you'll soar higher yet again. Can you say amen? Amen. Isn't that true, huh? 
Yeah, Moses failed big. Yeah, and he felt inadequate. He felt unqualified. He felt never complete again because of what he had done. Because sin does damage. But God rescues. And God builds. And God restores. You know, think of it, okay, just for a minute. Abraham was a boring liar. (laughs) He told the same lie twice just to get himself out of danger and put his wife in danger. And yet he's called the friend of God. That's Abraham. And how about about Jacob? He was a chiseler, (laughs) a scammer, a cheat. He swindled his father, swindled his brother, yet he was honored as Israel. So much for Jacob's broken pinion. Ruth, an outcast, a foreigner, no hope. But God is redeemer. God is helper. God is restorer. And if birds with broken pinions may never fly again, someone, Moses, And others, I mean, someone like Moses would never be able to lead Israel out of Egypt. And by the way, if that that story is true, too, about the broken opinion, someone other than me would have to be giving this sermon. But that old proverb, it may be true for birds, but not for yielded, submissive, humble, needy children of God. That's what I am. That's what you are. God specializes in broken, broken pinions, people with broken pinions. And he qualifies. He strengthens. That's his work. All I have to do, all I have to do is just raise my hand, take his hand, and his strength, his power, his goodness qualifies me. Failures and all. Yours too. So I want to say to you, no matter what your past is, no matter what your circumstance is, your future is brighter with God than it ever could be. Brighter with God. Because broken pottery is his specialty. Broken. I love the way Paul said to his church in Corinth, but we all have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. Yes, we're broken jars. We're jars of clay. We're common earthenware jars. That's us. That's me. That's you. Our bodies, our abilities, our strength, our prowess. That's us. But even though that's all we can offer, you don't have to feel rugged. You don't have to feel ragged. You may just be a broken jar, something far from classic China, but oh, you're an instrument of God. You're an instrument of God, his goodness, his grace, his power, his glory. He wants to shine through you. You may be unfired clay, still being molded and shaped for use, but as someone much more witty than me said, we're all clay pots And all of us are being molded. Only some of us are moldier than others. That may be the case. (laughs) That may be the case. But what's important is the treasure inside, right? 
a treasure inside. God's goodness in Jesus Christ working in us and through us. What's a few cracks? What's a few cracks if others get to see God's glory shining through?